So, I'm sorry to report to you that I've been unsuccessful thus far in getting Maharaj to give us a talk. I'll keep trying. Yeah, I talked most of the day, so I guess he's all talked out after that. I don't blame him. So, we'll continue our discussion. I'll just talk briefly tonight about this uh, Chatur Shloki, the four essential verses of the Bhagavatam. We've been discussing the first of two introductory verses for the actual uh, four verses. And we concluded last night with a brief discussion about two aspects of the Chatur Shlok. Shloki, that um, are in response to the last of the two questions of Brahma that, that uh, fostered the verses in the first place, that caused Krishna to speak. And those two followed the discussion of jnana, or scriptural knowledge, and again, realized knowledge. And they are rahasyam and tadangam. Again, Rahasim means secret, mystery. And the mystery is prem, is love. Love, we know, is mysterious and it transcends reason. And much more so than with love of God, the full expression of love. And Tadangam means, and prem is bhakti, and Tadangam means bhakti, but sadhana bhakti which is the means to prem. So bhakti is a means unto itself. By bhakti, by doing bhakti, then more bhakti develops. And we have been informed by Rupa Goswami that there's three, there are three natural divisions of this development. Sadhana, bhava, and prema. And so, with regard to Brahma's questions, the rahasyam of prem, prem bhakti, is deals with how the Lord plays. He asked, how does the Lord play with his different shaktis? And uh, the Tadangam, or Sadhana Bhakti, uh, replies to his question, how shall I attain all these things? Understanding of your form, of your energies, of your, your leela, and so on. Well, it's true that Sadhana Bhakti fosters prem, it should be understood properly, so that we don't think that prem is something that doesn't exist, and by doing something, it will come into existence. No. Nityasiddha Krishna prem sadhya kabunai. Chaitanya Charitamrita says, Nityasiddha Krishna prem. Krishna prem is eternally existing in perfection. It's not a, something that is caused by something else. It's not an effect of a cause. It's eternally existing reality. How will we understand that? Well, in a very simple way, we know that, that Krishna is eternal. So love of Krishna must be so as well. Krishna is not alone. And Krishna corresponds with 
love of Krishna. In other words, there are many forms of Godhead, and they correspond with different uh, loving sentiments of devotees. So, as much as Krishna is eternally existing, so Prem is eternally existing. It's not a caused event that at one time didn't exist, and by doing this it will exist. And um, it's not like in the ideas in the karma mark. You do something, you get this result. The result is already existing, and you can do things which is called sadhana bhakti, shravanade sudha chitte, that will purify your your consciousness. Shravanadi means hearing, chanting, etc. Sudha chitte, which will make your chitte, your consciousness, shudha, pure. And kore udai, then his brain, its eternal existing will arise. Just like you cannot make the sun come up in the morning. It has its own schedule. It comes up when it wants to come up. There's nothing you can do to make it come up earlier. And when it comes, then it just lights up the whole. It causes the day. It dissipates all the darkness. So Prem comes. This is a little difficult to follow. It comes of its own accord, but then we have something to do nonetheless on our own part. That's called sadhana bhakti. So the sadhana bhakti doesn't cause Prem, but it, it causes, it creates a condition. And we can say, shudhachite. In the context of its culture, in other words, if we do something to purify our consciousness that isn't in pursuit of prem, then prem may not come. But if in the pursuit of prem, of loving Krishna, of love of God, we simultaneously purify our consciousness, then and that creates then a situation where Krishna is likely, this prem is likely to manifest. It will arise. Uh, so, sadhana bhakti, therefore, is not to be thought of as a formula that I do this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, now you owe me, this, has, this result has to come. The karma mark works like this. You do it right, just like in science, you, you add the H and the two, and O. It <laughs> wasn't my best subject. And you get water, <laughs> right? And you can do it consistently time and time again. So karma mark works something like this. You make the yagya, you do it right, and face the right direction, right time, give charity to the right people, everything, and the result comes. There's some obligation there. There's some karmic uh, relationship between the gods who preside in nature, uh, over our senses, just like each of our senses corresponds with some aspect of nature, like our sight has some correspondence with the sun, without which our eyes are useless, right? We can't see in the dark. So uh, to acknowledge those different um, aspects of nature, of the macrocosm that correspond with the microcosm of our material sense of self, uh, there's a whole system to do that, given in ancient texts. All these sacrifices and what—it's not just uh, kind of a hocus-pocus, superstitious idea. But this is the idea behind it: that we have some, in order to see, 
well, for example, using that, that particular uh, sense. We're not independent. We need the I. Of course, we may think we are the I. We're the senses. Okay, fine. But we need the sun. We need light. And, and that's the big nature of the macrocosm. I'm a microcosm. So I have a relationship. And obviously, just like I said with regard to praying, we can't force the sun to come up. We can't, we're not in control. We like to try to be in control of nature these days, I guess. Since time immemorial, humans have been trying to, to um, get a handle on nature, conquer nature. Now we've developed some pretty sophisticated tools to do that with. But we run the risk, of course, of, of tweaking nature in such a way that it becomes pretty upset with us. <laughs> and just with a little, just a little shaking in the whole of California, we'll go into the, into the ocean. So, of course, this is the way people used to think about it. And that the gods were displeased because there was an earthquake. So now we, we think that's all very superstitious and whatnot. And so, un, un, unabashedly, we just go forward tampering with, with nature. And some, some religious people in different quarters object to there may be some moral implications here that should be considered and so forth. But they're a voice that's being drowned out by the practical, magical effects of the sacrifices of, if you will, and experiments of modern science. Really, modern science has gained as much credence as it, as it has and of course, it, it does has contributed a lot, but um, mostly from its medical uh, accomplishments. People are living longer and, um, and not dying from the bubonic plague or, or whatever it may be. That's real practical magic. But nonetheless, uh, while there's value in that, I think that um, we, we need to be a little cautious. In, uh, in tampering with nature. And we, we feel, of course, and the Bhagavad teaches that human existence is for a certain a particular purpose. And it is for conquering nature in a sense, but by doing it in a very different way, by a different, very different method of approach, by regard, having regard for nature. Just like we've said before, quoting somebody, I can't remember his name, that if you love someone, they'll reveal all their secrets. So it's a very different approach to nature rather than to exploit and poke and, 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 and take and so forth to, to revere. And, um, and it's a fact. We, we have practical experience. If you love someone, then they'll, they'll tell you everything about themselves. That's the way to know everything. So this is, of course, then simplistically the message of the Bhagavad. And um, indirectly, all of the Vedic texts, all of these sacred texts of the Hindus are all pointing in this direction. With regard to the karma mark, then there are experiments, there are sacrifices that you can do and you can get have a relationship with nature and cause things to happen and so forth. Um, but it's done within a certain framework so that we don't have the risk of our successes going to our heads and tampering with nature in ways that might invoke her her wrath. Now, that may sound a little superstitious, but that's our conviction nonetheless, that there's consciousness everywhere behind all. We have our experience that consciousness makes our 
material body have meaning and, and, and life. So there's consciousness be, behind matter is what makes matter worth, you know, matter, so to speak. It makes it matter. So to acknowledge that and connect with that, this is the idea of the karma marg. It's a way of uh, interacting with nature that's to accomplish human necessities, uh, but in a way that does not uh, run the risk of, as I say, invoking the wrath of of nature. And it's the worldview that it comes out of, of course, is one in which there's a purpose to human life, which is to transcend nature by a very different method than the methodology of modern technology, let's say, to try to conquer and and bring nature within the fists of one's hand and be the gods on earth. So I'm not saying, of course, that we should just uh, form sacrifices and find some ritual to cure this disease or that disease. And then again, how many of them came from (laughs) from wrong practices or abusing nature? We, We can't say it's complicated, but there's a place for science, there's a place for technology, and um, everything's not written in a book, but this is one thing that's written in a book. These books very strongly that, that we should have some, some regard for nature. We should know that without sun we cannot see, and we're not going to conquer the sun too easily and bring it within our grasp. And the, the, the vastness of nature and its power is, is, makes man and his might look very insignificant in comparison. So it's really folly to think uh, that we'll conquer entirely in that way. Rather, we'll be conquered. So at any rate, the Bhagavad teaching about Prem here, we wanted to, and, and Sadhana Bhakti both mentioned, distinguish this path that Krishna is teaching Brahma from the path of Karma Marg, wherein you do something, you get a result. It's kind of scientific in that way. Not that if you do something in bhakti, you won't get a result. You will get a result. But the person whom we're appealing to and whom we want a relationship with is what? Svarat, as we've heard in the first verse of Bhagavatam. Independent. Abhigna Svarat. He knows everything and no one can know him unless he wants to be known. He's independent. A fellow wrote me about a friend of his, a devotee in Poland, who actually wrote me about a, f- a friend of his who is a Wiccan and does magical spells and rituals and things like that. And according to him, that when he does the spells, nature spirits, whom he calls, they appear before him. And so he, he was surprised to find out from this devotee that when he chants, Krishna doesn't appear before him and plays flute and and uh, just, you know, right there. So he said, how can you believe in, in that when, he, when you do the chanting, but Krishna doesn't, doesn't come? And so the devotee asked me about how to, how to think, how to respond to that. So I, I explained this point, basically, that Krishna is independent. He doesn't have to come. Those nature spirits, if they do come, and a man isn't overindulging himself, uh, in some ways, that wouldn't be objectionable in, in the Wiccan path, perhaps, that if they do come, then they have to come. You've done the, the ritual, and, and they're bound to come. 
and they come to fulfill your material desires. So it's all within the realm of karma, cause and effect. They have to come. Now, love is a different thing, right? Love is voluntary. So, of course, if you love someone, they have to come. That's true. <laughs> they have to come to you. But it, but it's a different kind of obligation, right? It's not by law. You have transcended law by loving Krishna, and therefore you meet him on his, his grounds, on his terms. When he wants to show himself, he does, and he wants to. But to those of his own stamp, so to speak, he's a lover, and so he keeps certain types of associations. So to follow in the footsteps of those people who love him, this is the idea. That is sadhana bhakti, and those people have prema. So prema is nitisiddha. It's always existing. The question is where? So it's existing in the hearts of great devotees. Krishna is not alone, as I said. So the idea of, of our school of bhakti is to follow in the footsteps of such persons. Krishna has eternal associates. Follow in their footsteps. This is rag bhakti. And then that prema will come in us. So it's not like a formula. And sometimes it's kind of laid out like that. You follow these principles. And this many times you chant. This is like that in Karma Martin. You chant this many times, just like yeah, also, uh, you know, this many swahas, this many mantras, this many 16 rounds, and these four over here, and these over here. You do all, you got it all covered, something like that. It's, 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 yeah, it's not a recipe. <laughs> if you think of it like that, it's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> We just come disillusioned. Hmm. Krishna won't appear. So it's a hard exercise. Nitasunda was asking about how to control the mind while chanting japa. I explained to him. I said, well, if you love someone, then automatically you think about them, right? You can't stop thinking about them. So you have to think of the chanting in this way. It's a hard exercise. If you're not exercising your heart, it's going to be difficult to control your mind and concentrate your mind. If you exercise your heart, your mind will go there. So it must be done prayerfully. Prayerfully. Think about it. If you pray, does your mind have opportunity to go somewhere else? <laughs> when you sit, collect yourself together and you go and you want to make a prayer, how, how can you think about something else at the same time? So once when asked about prayer, Prabhupada said, Chanting Hare Krishna, that's the best prayer. So prayerfully, with the heart. It's a heart exercise. It's not a counting exercise. It's not a, a particular a formula. We may lay it out like that to some extent for people to get involved and get some handle, something to hold on to and so forth. But ultimately, it's a hard exercise. You have to exercise your heart. And of course, how do we do that? Well, that will be different in different stages and so forth. But you can start to think about whose name you're chanting, what, what he's like, what are his qualities, what are his attributes and so forth, the nature of his form and so forth. Obviously, Brahma's contemplating all of these things. So, at any rate, it's not a uh, formula. So, uh, the mystery of praying is eternally existing, and sadhana bhakti is kind of what it really is, is kind of an imitation of bhakti. So, sometimes it's said imitation of a good thing is a good thing. If you see something, I always remember as a kid, they used to have these commercials on the television. Let's let Hertz put you in the driver's seat. And there was this convertible going without a driver down the road. 
And then this guy kind of zoomed in and let Hertz put you in the driver's seat. Hertz is a rental car company, right? And the guy would get in the seat and he would drive off. And then, um, and that was like the only rental car company, I think, at the time. And then, who's the other one? Rent? Avis. Okay, or Avis. And then all of a sudden came Avis. And then I thought, well, that's a good idea. I was just a kid, I thought, they had a good thing, and so these people are just doing exactly what they did. And so they're going to have big success, too. So anyway, it's a simple thing, but imitation of a good thing is can be a good thing. You know, their slogan, right? No, it's Avis, a, Avis's slogan was, we're number two, so we right. try harder. Right, yeah, 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 <laughs> we're number two, so we try harder, right. right. By now, there's three and four and five and six and 108 of them out there. So, so a brain is a good idea, and, and to imitate that is, and we're also told don't imitate the advanced devotees, but, but we can, we, we say anukar, not anusar. Uh, to follow in their footsteps, but not to imitate. It means we don't imitate praying, but we follow in the footsteps that they leave behind them, by which they, they have shown the way to praying, something like that. So I remember when I was uh, young and, and just about to join the mission of Prabhupada, and, um, well, it's a long story, but I was on my way to Jamaica to live in the jungle, meditate, and uh, and it was New Year's Eve, and I met some people, and they told me, oh, you belong with the Krishnas, so they showed me where the temple was, and I went there, and, and uh, we went on and sent Harinams and Kirtan and whatnot. And the next morning, of course, um, I spent, spent the night at the temple, and um, they were living in tents in Coconut Grove it's in Florida, just you know, one hop over the Caribbean to Jamaica. And uh, so... You know, I said, okay, we take a cold shower. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds good, you know. And then, and he said, uh, and I said to him, well, why do you, uh, why do you shave your heads? As in those days, there was a lot of these pictures around of Meher Baba, and he had long hair and a beard. He said, I am Ram, I am Krishna. And uh, I had seen those around. And, to, and so, of course, we all had long hair in those days, too. This was very revolutionary to have a shaved head. It was very nonconformist. And, uh, so uh, I said, why did you shave your head? And he said, oh, Prabhupada shaved his head. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Yeah, okay. They were gonna just, he does it. It's good enough for him. It's good enough for them. You know, I, I kind of liked that. It was, wasn't a very profound answer, but it was a very profound answer at the same time. So basically we're saying, you know, we're imitating him or we're following his footsteps. We don't even know why, but... <laughs> but we like what he has and what he's about, so we figure this must be the way to get it. Something like that. So sadhana bhakti is, is something like that. These are the rules of sadhana bhakti, if you want it in, in kind of a nutshell, is what you conduct yourself in such a way that Krishna might become attracted to you. Like I said before, if, if a young lady loves, loves a young young man and then she wants to attract his attention. She, I find out something about him, what he likes. This may be a little old school, but I'm a little older. So, <laughs> you know, she puts a red dress on because he hears he likes red dresses or something like that. It just happens to be wearing a red dress. So he becomes attracted. So this is our rules. We conduct ourselves in such a way as to attract the attention of Krishna. We found people who are who have Krishna's attention, 
they conduct themselves in a particular way, so we'll also do like that. These are our, our rules. So when you think of it like this, it's not, you see, as I'm explaining, like a, like a formula. Krishna's not forced to appear. But he has appeared somewhere in the hearts of great devotees, and we follow in their footsteps. That is tadangam, that is sadhana bhakti, and it's very generous. Prem is a high thing. We don't have the prem, but, but uh, we, we want to follow the prem marg, prem bhakti. So, or shuddha bhakti, as it's sometimes called, pure devotion. And there is pure devotion in sadhana bhakti. It doesn't, pure devotion isn't only prem. Pure devo- this is the path of pure devotion, if you will, following in the footsteps of premikas, prem, prem bhaktas. So there's a sadhana for prem. It's kind of odd because prem is love and you can't really practice love, but you could practice the things that are said to foster love, to attract the object of love. So this is our task, huh? to attract the attention of Krishna. And what better way than to attach ourselves to somebody who's attracted the attention of Krishna? Because if that person becomes sympathetic to us, then automatically Krishna will also become sympathetic because that is the law of love. That's how love works. If we're going to say law of love, it means we're going to explain how it, how it works to some extent. If I love someone and you want that person's attention, and uh, so then you, uh, and you, you love me, if I love you, then he will automatically love you as well. It's automatic. That's just the nature of love, right? If someone is dear to you, you want to know the other people that are dear to, to him or her. And you automatically have a sympathy for them, a bias towards them. It's natural. So this is very much a spiritual kind of love uh, psychology. It really is love of God. I mean, it's everything that we know to be love in our limited way fully expressed towards the perfect object of love. So it's a very different, you see, than the Gyanmarg, which is without bias. As I said, the Gyanmarg, we advance by, by ragya, by detachment. And how do we advance in bhakti? By attachment, sangha. By attaching ourselves, association of advanced devotees, we make progress. It's really very, very different foundationally, fundamentally a different path. There are similarities in practice and so forth and similar beliefs and whatnot, but it's very, very different. So you shouldn't mix up this bhakti yoga with every other kind of yoga practice and so forth. It's, it has a, it's, it's a very fundamentally different approach to the absolute. And it's a, it's a sometimes described as avaroha panta. It's a descending path. We, position ourselves in such a way that it will be inclined to descend uh, into us, and that we're going to climb up there and conquer. It's not this kind of conquering mentality that uh, we're accustomed, especially American individuals, the rugged individuals, the Marlboro men, and so forth. It's not like that at all. Bhakti. Even the Yogamarg, Gyanmarg, they have elements of this, that which, which we're speaking out against with regard to materialism and, and, and the idea of conquering nature and so forth. That's, uh, when we talk about it, it's a little unappealing to exploit nature and conquer over her rather than revere her and so forth. 
these paths also have a trace of that in them as well. Maybe not over nature, but to conquer the whole. And it's a, it's a um, ascending by virtue of one's own power. Elements of this are in the path. This is bhakti is, is very different. It's, it's, we have to, it's really an acknowledgement that I don't have the power. So I told him, how do you chant? I said, we have to acknowledge you don't have the power to chant and control your mind. So then, then you reach out from beyond your, your own um, equipment, so to speak. You have, you have faulty equipment, you have counterfeit currency, but there's something in you that's real and true. That's what? Only your sincerity is all we have to go with. Exercise your sincerity, be honest. It doesn't matter so much what your position is, how many material desires you have, how many less or whatnot. It's the it's, it's sincerity that's, that's important. And part of that sincerity is acknowledging one's position with regard to desires and so forth and, and conducting oneself accordingly. Brahma had big desire to create the world. He wanted to do it for the pleasure of God, but nonetheless he wanted to, wanted to do that. He's asking here how I can do that and not get implicated by that. So Krishna's teaching him. Called Gona Vritti Bhakti, Mukhi Vritti Bhakti. Directly hearing and chanting about Krishna, we're doing things for the pleasure of Krishna that correspond, happen to correspond with something that I want to do. Now, now there's always going to be some point where there's some contradiction of what I want to do and what's good for Bhakti and, and my Bhakti. So then I have to cross over that, so to speak. But often they'll be run along parallel parallel lines. So it's very, in this sense, user-friendly. So I don't want to go into this in depth because there are verses here in the four slokas that are about the prayojana, about praying, and there are verses, a verse, about an a verse entirely dedicated to the means described here as tadangam. But this is the an overview that comes in the first introductory verse. That in brief answers the four questions of Brahma and, and says to him, now I'm, I'm going to go on in detail here in uh, four verses and explain each of these answers to you. And before doing that, he has another introductory verse where he emphasizes another point, an important point. He says, Yavanaham tathabhavo yadrupa guna karmaka tathaiva tattva vijyanam astute mad anugrahat so here's Krishna now raising his hand, Gyanudra, and giving the blessing. Take it, Brahma. He says, By my mercy, realize these things. By my mercy, I, you will get Vigyan and Prem. These are the two sadhyas mentioned here. Sadhana, sadhya is Prem. Gyan, theoretical knowledge, the goal of which is practical knowledge, realization. So we get theoretical knowledge to help us orient us such that we can get realization of that. Wisdom, turn knowledge into wisdom. So the two sadhyas, in, in, with regard to the four topics, bigyan and prem, rahasyam, the mystery of prem. He gives a blessing here for both of these things. He said, Yavanaham Yatabhavo. He said, Understand me, my form, as I am, Yatabhavo, and my nature. Yadguna, Rupa, Karmaka. My activities, my qualities, 
everything. In saying this also, he's, he's making it very clear to us. What? He's making, excuse me, he's making it very clear to us that, that what you, I'm going to speak to you about, what I'm giving you a blessing to realize, is not uh, nirvishesh, without attributes. I'm going to give you the blessing to realize my form, my nature, my qualities. So he's in my form, my nature, and my qualities, they're transcendental. I give the blessing by which you realize them. This again is speaking about a theistic kind of monism, in which everything is one, but the one is a person. And persons are complex, multifaceted, and so forth. So there's a kind of a difference, a variety there, and oneness at the same time. So it's and it's a common common misconception, of course, that uh, that the highest reality will be formless, qualityless, nameless, and activityless, and so forth. Whereas form, name, quality, and all that speak to us about ultimate reality are only partial expressions of that which is beyond form, beyond name, beyond qualities, and, and so on. Actually, the fact is that the idea that the absolute and ultimate reality is formless, nameless, qualityless, and so forth, is, is meaningless. It's not intelligible in any way. If it has no qualities, you can't say anything about it, really. You can't. It's... it's uh, no. The Shastras say, Brahman is consciousness. Brahman is Ananda, for example. So you tell me, which is it? Either you've got to make the two, consciousness and Ananda one, which is, they're two different words and they talk about two different things. Or we have to come to grips with the idea that that uh, it's not a empty uh, void. And it has it is ananda, it is consciousness, at the same time. And it is not that such attributes or form, qualities, um, and so on, in any way limit the absolute. Rather, not. Uh, insufficient determination, to use the word in the philosophical sense, determination, determining to know, insufficient determination is um, is a limitation. As we don't go fur- far enough into transcendence, don't look at it closely enough, then we'll arrive at a formless kind of idea. Form facilitates, it doesn't limit. So, in a very kind of brief way here, he wants to make this point. For, I'm going to tell you about this ultimate reality, and it's me, and, it will, and you can, I bless you that you will realize my form, my name, my qualities. So again, to realize them means that implies that they're transcendent. Of course, you understand that Krishna's form is everywhere. So you want, you like the idea of the formless, because it's everywhere, as form seems to be a limitation. But, if you study carefully Gaudiya Vaishnavism, you understand Krishna's form is limitless. It's hard to grasp, isn't it? But this is coming up. He's going to describe this. My form is, there's no limit to that. Everything's inside me. I mean, he's shown it to, to different devotees at different times as well. 
You showed it to Mother Yashoda, right? The whole universe is inside me. Inside my mouth. These are just one example. So, Tataiva Tattva Vigyanam Astute Mad Anugrahat. So realize, he says, all these things. My form, my nature, my, my qualities, my leelas. Realize all these things by my mercy. So this is the other important factor that Krishna's mercy is required. Knowing is a result of a blessing. Again, it's not any, we cannot force our way there. And this is very central, as I said earlier, to describe to some extent, explain to some extent, to bhakti. Pujapachitamarsh used to say, we are standing in a line waiting for mercy. We're in a line, and when you get to the front, you get your mercy. So you're in the queue, right? It's a long, long line for mercy. And we may see that others are getting, and we have to be very careful while waiting in line for mercy that we don't ask for justice. Hey, I've been here a long time. <laughs> I think, you know, it's about time for me to back of the line. <laughs> there you go. Hmm. So, this is the idea. Again, it's very, it's not your right. It's not that you do any particular thing and it mandates that you will have to get this. No. It's not like that. He's Swarat. He's independent. If he wants to give, that's his prerogative. We try to act in such a way that we've seen others have attracted his attention. And he's the pusher, so we have to be ready to be pushed. He is the positive magnet, and all his other paths have at least some positive content on the other end. And so there's some repulsion. Krishna, Swayambhang, Bhagavan, is, is repulsed by, by material desire. In other words, you know, he, he fulfills it and he, he caters to that through Paramatma for those who want, but him personally he's not interested. So the pusher, in that sense, the positive approach to conquer and collect and amass, acquire and so forth, it's not attractive to him. <laughs> Everything belongs to him. You're trying to get a piece of it. Yourself, that doesn't attract his attention, and so more subtle and sophisticated way to go about that by gyan or or by yoga. Still, there's some self-assertion there that uh, he finds un- unbecoming. Neither in that do they really want him; they want something that he has. He has Brahman, he has Paramatma feature. The gyanis want the Brahman. The yogis want the paramatma. Those are aspects of himself. So it's not attractive to him. What to speak of that? Krishna says that bhakti encumbered by intellect and calculation is not attractive to me. Even. Calculative devotion means, in a sense, I'll do it because it's the right thing to do. It should be done. It's a high motive. It should be done, therefore I'll do it. In a sense, this is to act out of duty. He's God. He should be served. Some thinking is involved here. He's God. He should be served. 
Because Krishna just wants to bring dead people. Syncophants <laughs> Sink, only, you know, we just do whatever he says. Uh, so, no, he's not attracted by that, he says. By love, by heart. This is easy. This is what attracts him. So, very different path. So we have to become completely like Yashoda Marsha's language, like the negative. Spiritual life is grows by negative, so you would say, by the negative position. So using the magnetic analogy, there's a positive magnet and a negative magnet, and they attract. So as much as there's any positive, I know that sounds negative, but <laughs> anything positive in us, any pushing, then he's going to be repelled. He's, he is the pusher. He's the purush. We are the prakriti. As much as we assume falsely the position of a purush, an enjoyer, then he's repelled by that. So to take the opposite side, that he's the, like he's the male, we're the female kind of thing. He's the purush, we're the prakriti. This is a very interesting because it's it's just like that. It's just like as I say, you just position yourself. To, <laughs> there you are, just immediately <laughs> tracked it up. <laughs> Akarshan, sankarshan. Krishna comes from the same attraction to bring together. As a, as a Gerson was asking about sankarshan, what does it mean? He sankarshan. He he connects the two. He connects the families of Rohini and Vasudev and Balaram. He's in between. He connects them, and she goes to Dwarka, Rohini. So he he anyway he draws the Vishnis and the and the, the Adus together. This is. Uh, so, and he draws us also to Krishna, Balaram, Nityananda rule. So, so at any rate, this is this is our path. It has no positive pushing kind of um, side to it. We have to push ourselves to be empty. That's the pushing, <laughs> pushing in the opposite direction, pushing away the pushing in ourselves, and 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 the right, the demand. What's fair? It's not fair. <laughs> I mean, we have to be fair with one another as much as possible, but life isn't fair. So in love and all's fair in love, they say, right? So this is something uh, about the nature of the, the path. And here it said, Astu te madhanugrahati says, Take my mercy, but... Brahma has attracted the mercy of Krishna. So he's appeared and he's giving his blessing. That kind of blessing we need. We need to make effort, but it's an effortless effort. It's an effort. It's, an, it's kind of an effort to not make an effort, in a sense. That's not the best way to say it, but it's, it's an effort to be to attract the attention of Krishna. And, and we will not do that by pushing ourselves, by asserting ourselves. Shudamarsh used to say that in this material world, we get ahead by stepping on the heads of others. But in bhakti, we get ahead by allowing others to step on our head. That's why we're always putting our head on the ground. People wonder. So they want to get stepped on <laughs> by some Vaishnava, something like that. So it's just a very opposite idea. And you see how the material world is, is so much... Um, Based on pushing, you have to, you know, what did Darwin say? The struggle to survival of the fittest. The fittest will be the one who is the strongest, and the biggest beast will be the most fit. 
something like that. That's obviously an oversimplification, but at any rate, even if it's a strategy that you come up with for surviving by being by being kind or something, still it's like coming from here, from the head, pushing oneself, asserting oneself. You know, it's to acknowledge this the assertion of Bhagwan and see the beauty and harmony in that. And uh, so, rather than stepping on people's heads to have our head stepped on. He described it once as the land of gurus. We want to go to the land of gurus. Even the, even the dust is worshipable by us. So this is something then about our dis- the disposition to be cultivated in bhakti. We have to be careful about that because it, we, we're prone to think in another way. And so it's very prone to turn bhakti sadhana into a formula into a, the process. Sometimes <laughs> the process. It's, it's really not a process. It's really not a, not a formula. So in this way we've read now up to the, through the introduction of the first four verses. And, and then Saturday night we'll begin here with this, uh, unless I get Maharaj to talk about something. Mm-hmm. And then so then we'll go on for this one. Uh, first verse of the Chattva Shloka in the following class. Okay. Stop there. Grantaras, Srimad Bhagavad Gita, Old Permanente.